So really excited today. We had uh, Dr. Hill on, man, and we get into uh, nootropics and the difference between synthetic, all natural, and it was- well, the difference between just a stimulant and a nootropic, right? And right. Why a nootropic is a completely different category of of substances, and he talked a lot about a product that he works with, but he talked about some of the uh, individual ingredients, uh, most of which are in. Chimera coffee, yeah, which was kind of cool. Well, and this, those ingredients. this is a lot of why why we took so long to find a a company that we were going to affiliate with was because we wanted somebody that uh, we we stood behind, we would stand behind going forward. We knew uh, where the science was heading in this direction, and loved what Chimera Coffee has been doing and the products and the stuff that they're releasing. So huge fan uh, of the company. If you guys still have not tried out uh, the Chimera Coffee, you guys can uh, get it. Uh, at Chimera's website, but you can also uh, get 10% off uh, by using the Mind Pump discount, and you can get that link straight through our our website at mindpumpmedia.com. Yeah, and uh, the, the coupon code, I believe, is Mind Pump. Uh, but yeah, nootropics, uh, they're good for the brain. That's one of the big differences between a nootropic and a just a good old-fashioned stimulant, and uh, they work better and better over time, which is probably why when I drink Chimera, I notice better effects after mm-hmm. I've been using it for consistently for a while versus just one shot, you know, one time doing it. So uh, check them out, guys. Support us and check out Chimera Coffee. If you want to pump your body and expand your mind, there's only one place to go. Mind Pump. Mind Pump. With your hosts, Sal Stefano, Adam Schaefer, and Justin Andrews. All right, Mind Pump listeners, uh, we had a fantastic interview just now. Possibly one very of my, stimulating. Probably one of my favorites, if not my favorite. What's yeah. cool? So we're, we talked to Dr. Andrew Hill, uh, who's God. He's all over the the podcast circuit, uh, YouTube circuit. The guy is a one of the leading uh, researchers, uh, neuroscientists on everything from nootropics to how food affects the brain. Um, he's a cognitive neuroscientist. He founded the Brain Training Center at Peak Brain Institute. Um, he teaches at UCLA, very, very smart guy. Uh, we talked a lot about nootropics. We talked about nutrition, mm-hmm. we talked about sugar addiction. and how sugar affects the brain addiction. And I asked him his thoughts on pre-workout. That was excellent to listen to that. Yeah. yeah. Really, really good episode. We had a lot of fun talking to him. You can find him on Twitter at Andrew Hill PhD, uh, or you can check him out, um, on peakbraininstitute.com. So without any further ado, here's mind pump interviewing Dr. Andrew Hill. A few years ago, I helped found a uh, an alternative addiction center, which oddly enough is called Addiction Alternatives. And the the biggest difference in the way that Addiction Alternatives does their work compared to other places is they're really not a fan of twelve step. Um, and and I don't mean the 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 twelve step community or the program, but the, but the perspective on being powerless, on giving up a uh, sense of control, on labeling yourself as an addict. Mm. Those are all things that, that we saw, you know, there's some other room for other solutions. And so um, I wasn't the addiction-focused guy initially. I came into the brain services for alternatives. Um, Dr. Mark Kern and Dr. Adi Jaffe, the two sort of addiction-focused founders of that company. Um, Mark Kern is the CEO, sorry, the, uh, the chairman of the board and the founder of two um, free self-help groups that are other options besides 12-step. One's called SMART, SMART Recovery. It's an acronym. I forget what it stands for. And one's called Moderation Management. And they're very similar, but SMART has an abstinence focus and Moderation Management has a moderation focus. And so a lot of the program over at Alternatives, which is in Beverly Hills, um, has a moderation uh, perspective, meaning you come in, you say, 
you know, I don't want to stop drinking forever. I just want to learn how to drink appropriately. And mm. some of those people are folks that have out of control, let's say, drinking behavior. Other folks have been abstinent for many, many years. You know, we had folks come in and say, look, I've been an alcoholic for 30 years, haven't had a drink in 20 years. I want to start drinking again. Teach me how. And they do. It's a, it's a heavily structured program. It's not like we're, you know, throwing people into uh, bars and walking away. But this sort of a structured program examining the cues and triggers that lead to uh, a compromised relationship with a substance. Um, all clients in that program do at least one month of abstinence at the beginning, regardless if they're an abstinence or moderation track client. And the reason is that a big part of moderation sort of uh, control or reestablishing a moderate you know, use pattern with a substance um, for folks who have gotten into trouble with addiction, a big feature of it often is tolerance. And so taking a month off from alcohol resets your tolerance. And then you're able to use substances in a way that is much more measured and moderate because you get a stronger effect. So a, big, a bigger uh, component of a moderation focused or even a harm reduction focus is reducing tolerance so you don't use at the top level of your substance. So there's some variability you can ex- experience differences as you, you know, use. Um, so I, I worked there for about three and a half years. I, I ran the, the brain side of that company. Um, and we saw not only the addiction clients, but other brain, general brain things. And, you know, I, I do a lot of what's called neurofeedback or biofeedback on the brain. And uh, it works for pretty much everyone who has a brain. So over time, I had more and more and more clients coming in that were not substance abuse perspective clients. Uh, and so after a few years, I created another company, which is just a, a broad brain training center. Um, it does not specifically have an addiction focus, although occasionally we have folks coming through that have, you know, problems with alcohol or cannabis or other, other drugs. Um, but at, uh, at that company, which is called Peak Brain, we just basically treat all comers with whatever, you know, brain challenges they have. And some of those are people with substance abuse, some are people with, you know, developmental issues or ADHD or sleep issues. And other folks are, are people that just have nothing wrong but want to stay sharp or get sharper or better rested or more creative or more focused. So um, that's interesting. Yeah. So explain neurofeedback. You, you, you uh, used that term yeah. a couple times. How does that work? What does that look like? Um, and, you know, it, especially in relationship to helping people with, you know. Sure. Uh, yeah. Addiction. Yeah. yeah. So, so um, neurofeedback or biofeedback on the central nervous system is, uh, I mean, people have heard the term biofeedback before, and it evokes this idea of sitting and relaxing and trying to almost meditate. Um, And for forms of what we call peripheral biofeedback, when you're training the peripheral nervous system, that's what it is. You're you're sitting and trying to pay attention to how you're feeling and try to feel certain ways. And some examples of peripheral biofeedback include things like heart rate variability or hand warming or galvanic skin response training. These are all sort of stress and wellness kind of technology-assisted meditation almost. Um, That's not what neurofeedback is. Neurofeedback is measuring fluctuations in the central nervous system, and most of those fluctuations are happening in a time course that's uh, too fast, if you will, to perceive. And so while peripheral peripheral biofeedback is voluntary, effortful, and you must practice it, central biofeedback or neurofeedback, which in this case... um, most neurofeedback is training EEG or brain waves, and some neurofeedback is also training blood flow. It's what we call it HEG, hemoencephalography. And either EEG biofeedback or HEG biofeedback in both cases, we're measuring fluctuating 
signals in the brain, be it temperature or the amplitude of a brain wave or connectivity between two regions of the brain or some other sort of complicated mathematical parameter we're measuring. But since you're alive, the brain is fluctuating dramatically moment to moment. And certain things we care about changing are themselves changing naturally. So let me give you an example. Um, and I'll, and I'll, I'll, I'll bring it back to the addiction. Uh, often in addiction, you have a compromised relationship with the substance. You know, that, that's basically learning. Your, your brain has learned to become addicted to whatever it is you're struggling with. But you've also got underlying problems that might be driving the use behavior, including things like sleep onset problems, uh, anxiety, and ADHD. Those are really, really common in, in people that abuse substances. Interesting. Especially sleep issues and alcohol abuse. Now, sort of chicken and egg. Uh, alcohol releases GABA, the neurotransmitter GABA in the brain, which is that calm, soft, sort of low-key feeling you get from alcohol. And that's um, a neurotransmitter the brain uses to downregulate, and it uses to shut things off at night as you start to fall asleep. And if you're a chronic drinker, when you aren't drinking, after years of that, the brain forgets, if you will, how to produce GABA um, when necessary. And the chronic burnt out alcoholic is over aroused. They can't calm down. They can't fall asleep without a drink. They can't get a thought out of their mind without interrupting themselves 47 and a half times. Now this That's seems, over- yeah. doc, this seems to, this seems to be true with, uh, m- many things other than just alcohol too, right? I mean, you could m- marijuana and opiates. It, Absolutely. Very- I mean, we, the, the, the drug of choice is a little bit less important than, the perspective on a compromised relationship with a substance. You can have a compromised relationship with things like television or food or sex as well. It's not about the drug it's, or, or, or any drug. It's about your relationship with a stimulus mm-hmm. um, and why you're using it. I mean, if you have a couple drinks a night, that could be healthy. If you have um, a couple drinks every so often, that could also be unhealthy. It's all about why you're doing it and what happens afterwards. Very, um, very interesting uh, perspective. I, lo- I love that. Um, yeah. You know, we're, we work in the fitness industry, and we, the biggest addiction we work with is the addiction to food. Yeah, and, yeah, like uh, binging it, and yeah, all, how that all happens. Yeah, and it's all and also you have the orthorexia in the fitness industry. Where people are so incredibly exactly. rigid about their food that that itself is a cognitive distortion about reality about how you deal with things like food god we love, to hear, love yeah. to hear you say that that is one of the messages that uh, we try to put out there that you know i i, I came up through the, the competing and i actually worked mm-hmm. my way all the way up through the professional level and man one of the most glaring things that i saw was wow these are all the people on covers of magazines and all these people aspire to be like these people but these some of these people have the the worst addictions and the worst uh health issues going on but yet everybody looks at them as like this health icon right and they're they're totally not and we try and put that forward that people don't realize uh that you know even eating super regimen like that uh so strict can become an addiction too just like a like a drug is so that's that's so great to hear you talk about that now with neurofeedback yeah when someone is so the feedback aspect of it i'm assuming it's the when you're working with someone they can see Mm what's going on with their brain and they're trying to... Yes and no. Okay. Yes and no. Now, the, the word trying, flat no. Neurofeedback is involuntary. Okay. Peripheral mm. biofeedback is voluntary. You've got to practice it until you learn how to do it and, and you have to keep practicing it to keep the skill. But central biofeedback, we're shaping brain activity you can't really perceive, let alone control. And we give the brain some applause, if you will, in the form of a video game or music or a movie running better. So let's say whenever you're... Theta brainwaves temporarily drop. Theta is a high theta state's distractibility. Essentially, 
impulsivity, ADHD, problems falling asleep, et cetera, is high theta. So whenever theta happens to briefly drop, maybe a spaceship flies faster and the audio track swells in volume. And the next moment your brain moves in quote unquote the wrong direction, the theta surges again, and the spaceship stalls and the music goes quiet, for instance. And the next moment the brain happens to move in the right direction, meaning theta goes down, and the spaceship surges ahead on the screen, and the music gets louder again. And then over time, we move the goalposts. So the brain can never get comfortable just doing one thing, and we, we shape. This is operant conditioning of the EEG, or instrumental conditioning. Think Skinner, not Pavlov. We're not making like your brain drool from some novel stimuli. We're, we're taking things it's already doing and shaping it to do more or less. You know, Skinner had pigeons that were taught to peck on bars for pellets of food. But the pigeon didn't, the first time he, he was in the cage, walk over to the bar and peck it three times and get some food. You first reward or give the pigeon the, the pellet when it gets near the bar. And then you give the pigeon the pellet only when it steps in the bar. And then give the pigeon the pellet when it steps in the bar twice, if that's the behavior you're trying to reinforce. So this is that kind of shaping. The only place the metaphor breaks down is the things we're shaping are happening in like the tens of milliseconds time scale, which is way below your ability to perceive. So we shape the brain gently, give it some applause in a specific direction, and then over a day and a half or so, we watch and see if that workout, if you will, produced the right benefit. And if it did, great, we keep going, and we sort of gradually shape the brain further and further in a specific direction that's based on a combination of uh, the goals they want, plus some brain mapping, quote-unquote, I do. It's called a quantitative EEG. We assess uh, aspects of your brain activity and find patterns related to things like impulsivity, sleep issues, chronic alcoholism, OCD, PTSD, brain injuries, you know, the list goes on. Uh, so we find these patterns and then exercise them away over time. And then based on how someone's experiencing the process, we fine-tune the process to make sure they get long-term changes in their brain. Very interesting. But, so over time, you see people, uh, I guess, improve or get more, hmm? get closer to their goal. But I have a question on that. So yeah. you're identifying, you know, brainwave patterns, you're moving them towards or exercising them towards, uh, you know, an ideal or towards a direction that they may want to go to. Are there conflicting, you know, you know, benefits and detriments to certain types of wave, you know, uh, brainwave patterns. For example, yeah. I've noticed, uh, and this is anecdote. Uh, I've I've worked mm -hmm. in in sales uh, for for long times. I, I for long periods of time, I've trained salespeople. And anecdotally, I noticed a lot of salespeople are ADD. And I always yeah. I always yeah. wondered if that made them good mm. at sales. Uh, you know, is that is that true? Do you notice that? Do you notice how some things can, you know, certain brave waving patterns? Yeah, can, oh. let me give you an example. Um, theta, as I mentioned earlier, when it's high, with your eyes open, if it's staying high, then the brakes are off cognitively. Everything that comes in, you react to mentally or physically. Okay. And that's ADHD. That's a failure to inhibit. So you're reacting to the, the sort of bottom up, you know, all different modules in the brain, the sensory module, the visual module, the auditory module, et cetera. All those things are driving the ship when the prefrontal cortex is a little bit asleep, meaning excess theta. When, uh, so high theta means low executive function, which is not ideal. But if you make really good eyes closed theta, then you have the, a really great ability to be creative, to access memories, to go into a sort of a reverie mm. or dream state. Mm. Um, and so in one case, it's a positive thing. Mm. In another case, it could be a negative thing. So if your goal is your creativity, then yeah, you want to train up theta potentially. But if your goals are getting rid of ADHD, you train down theta. And sometimes people come in with conflicting goals. They need to be uh, more alert, but also less anxious. 
Mm. And we have to really sort of hedge and do combinations of protocols and try different things. The neurofeedback process starts with science, but from there it goes into art. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of very subjective, like when I'm doing any specific intervention on someone's brain, it's a combination of the uh, sort of evidence-based, you know, quantitative EEG database. Uh, quantitative EEG or brain mapping is a normative database-driven process. So out of the map, I get a sense of how unusual your brain is from the average population. And then we figure out the things that are most unusual might mean X, Y, or Z. So I'll say, oh, this excess theta, that's three standard deviations above average, usually means impulsivity. Are you impulsive? Oh, you are. Okay, great. Let's believe this data. And we sort of figure out the most statistically unusual things in your brain, which of those are actually uh, related to things you want to change, be that sleep issues, stress, problems, uh, staying alert, um, all kinds of things we can can work on. When there's an addiction, you know, a problem or a substance abuse problem in the mix, then there's the cognitive or the habit piece of the addiction but there's also resources. And if you're really impulsive, really anxious, can't tolerate sitting still, can't tolerate your emotions, and you can't fall asleep at night without downregulating your brain from the outside, so to speak, then you're probably going to use drugs or alcohol because you're stuck. You're unable to get out of your own way. And drugs and alcohol actually do affect your brain potentially positively. You're sort of self-medicating. Mm. Um, if you remove those, remove the impulsivity, remove the need to get stoned to fall asleep or to get drunk to fall asleep then you give people freedom over their behavior and much more control over time. Very interesting. So do you also use as part of your therapy, uh, you know, uh, drugs or substances uh, to help them along the process? You know, I, I know know if there's a lot right now, a big popular movement Mm and, you know, we work in the fitness industry and you see a lot of nootropics, for example. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you combine those with your therapies to help? Um, I, I, I don't actually. And in spite of having created uh, true brain and, you know, working in the nootropic space, I, I tend not to mix my sort of startups, if you will. Um, and the reason is that when people are doing neurofeedback with me, it's a you know three to six month process, and the goal is to make permanent change. Mm. Nootropics are there to provide long term, you know, decades of support, but they should help you gradually and and more of a sp- like you're getting effects from the dose from the from, from each you know days worth of nootropics you take, but also it's helping trajectories of things like aging and performance. Um, so nootropics aren't changing your baseline in any permanent way. They're adding on top of the baseline. So I do get a lot of biohackers who are very interested in doing everything to their brain. When they work with me, I tell them, okay, great. You know, I'm really happy. I'm, I'm happy to support your nootropic journey or uh, other things you want to do. But let's first see what a couple of months of neurofeedback does because the baseline will change so quickly and so dramatically we want to see what that is, make sure it's replicable, make the permanent change, and then we can go further on that foundation and add nootropics. Mm. You know, if, if, if diet, um, meaning nutrition largely, uh, sleep and stress are not managed, it's hard to build on top of that. And so just like somebody wouldn't be able to do, you know, all kinds of crazy exercise without developing a nice foundation uh, of small connectivity muscles, you know, you would, the first time someone goes to free weights, after being on machines for 20 years, they have no control because they just don't, the muscles aren't really educated to control these you know, big free weights and things. Mm. This and is, this yeah. is something that we, we talk heavily about is just, uh, uh, I feel like we're, we're few of the, the a lot of people this as bros, a bunch of buff uh, fitness uh-huh. guys. And so, and yet we talk a lot about the central nervous system and, and I feel like everyone wants to skip that process. They want to get right to like the, the best exercise that's going to build me this or the the best exercise yeah. to do this. And it's like, 
you first need to lay this solid foundation because if you're not well connected to all these things, you're never going to get the maximal uh, yeah, exactly. effort out of all, all of your muscles and the rest of your body. And the same goes with the nutrition piece. I love hearing you talk mm-hmm. about, you know, starting all the way from ground zero and then building you up. It's not to say that we won't eventually get to all these cool tricks and new tropics mm-hmm. and other mm-hmm. things and enhancements that we can utilize later down the road. But first we need to build this sol- solid foundation and then we, we slowly build on top of that. I feel like it's a very similar approach to how we talk about health and fitness. Yeah, so I, I would never say, sure, take some nootropics because you weren't sleeping well. It's more like, let's fix your sleep, mm-hmm. get you you know feeling much better, and then let's see where nootropics take you from there. Um, you know, If somebody had, it, they were aging, they were, had some risk of Alzheimer's, then I would say using nootropics sort of prophylactically, it makes sense. But in terms of a biohack, it's much more important to get all of the foundation things in place and then build on that pyramid, just like you would in the body. The brain mm-hmm. is you know, physical tissue. So it's, it, it doesn't, it's not muscles, but it does learn, change, respond uh, in a very similar way to educating muscle tissue. Now, now Dr. Hill, um, I know that exercise increases um, you know, or improves brain activity. And now we mm-hmm. know that exercise uh, increases the amounts of uh, BDNF uh, that's Absolutely. released in the brain. Uh, brain-derived neurotropic factor, I believe, is the, mm-hmm. the correct term. Yep, exactly. What does that affect? What does that do to the brain? Increasing that, and what is it? Mm, why is that important? Question. So BDNF is the final. Well, it's it's a very hot uh, molecule these days. But as far as we know, it's a plasticity, a growth factor. You can think of it in the brain, and um, the brain is always making new cells. This is something that was relatively new information, you know, the past couple of decades. Um, we are making new brain cells all the time, like continuously. Now, it's a much lower rate than it was when you were, you know, 10 years old, but you're still making all uh, kinds of brain cells. And even like two weeks ago, up until, you know, a month ago, we thought that the places the brain makes cells are this very narrow zone in the uh, lateral ventricles is one place and around the hippocampus, which is a very active part of the brain. Um, we sort of thought that was the play- those were the regions where the brain was still sort of active with cell development. Two weeks ago, there was a paper published that showed that the meninges, these wrapping layers, which we thought mostly were cushioning and protecting the brain, are actually replete with cells that generate new brain cells, you know, wow. neural stem cells. So there's all kinds of new cells being born all the time. These cells are not born, if you will, as the final kind of cell they need to be. There's sort of a pluripotent, like, a, like a, a potential cell that can become any kind of brain cell. And they're not born, they, they aren't developed in the place they need to be. They're, they're, the brain's a pretty big, you know, ball of jelly, and the cells are, are produced some in one place or two places, and they travel to the place they need to be. On the way to, in that journey, they turn into the kind of cell they need to become, a glial cell, a neuron, a blood vessel, etc. And half of those cells that start that process, die. And what determines if they die or if they make networks and connect to other parts of the brain and become thriving cells is access to BDNF. Mm. And access to BDNF is enhanced by making connections to other cells. So this process, it's about a five-week process for cells to be born, develop into the kind of cell they want to be as they travel throughout the brain. Being bathed in BDNF encourages and ensures that that's going to be part of a network. So that's one big implication of BDNF, but anything that causes learning and an uptick in plasticity causes an, an increase of BDNF. So exploring novel environments, exercising, talk therapy, neurofeedback, there's good evidence all of these things spike BDNF and therefore increase plasticity 
or the brain's ability to change. So you think that the yeah. ex- that exercise will cause that uh, mainly because the body, it seems to me like the body's, uh, you know, obviously the brain, uh, there's lots of neural connections that, you know, uh, are con- connected to how we move and the sensors, mm-hmm. you know, our senses, our hands, our feet. And so exercise uh, stimulates that uh, BDNF. Yeah, there's, there's a somatosensory input, a proprioceptive input, um, but also just change, just just new information, period. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll, we'll change it. If I sent you to a piano lesson today and then at the end of the day imaged your brain, every single cell in the hand area of your motor cortex, every single cell would have remapped and touching a different cell uh-huh. in the same wow. day. That's fascinating. So it's a very, very rapid process. It starts in the order of seconds when you start learning new information. Um, one more thing about BDNF, it turns out BDNF is also the antidepressant signal in the brain. Anything that lifts depression, anything, seems to do so by raising BDNF in the hippocampus. Wow. So I, so, have, I have a question yeah. on that. You, you talked a lot. You just said uh, you know, how novel experiences tend to uh, increase that. And I'm reading this new research now. Talking about how um, you know they're do, do, doing research on things like psilocybin or lysergic mm-hmm. acid, mm-hmm. and how that's helping people with everything from addiction to depression to end of life therapy, mm-hmm. um, and, obvi- and And I've also read other studies showing how uh, highly intelligent people tend to be more prone to want to experiment with psychedelics because of the novelty, you know, the, the altered states of consciousness. Does that affect BDNF as well? Does that also encourage? new brain cell growth. Yeah, novelty because- certainly does. Okay. Um, th- there's probably more to it than this, but at least one very specific example is the hippocampus has cells called place cells that fire. They get excited when they recognize the environment they've been in before. They learn cues of the environment, and they also get very, very excited when they explore new environments. So the act of like hiking out into the woods on a new hiking trail or something produces a bigger BDNF increase than walking around your house. Because it's novelty, and the brain's trying to integrate. Where's this new environment? Are there interesting things here I should learn about? This is a survival sort of based learning, um, and this is probably why exercise and other things also raise that hippocampal BDNF. Because we don't usually run in place at high speeds, you know, evolutionarily, like a treadmill or something is not really a real environment. But a lot of physical motion tends to mean a lot of travel when we're, you know, primitive beings. And so this is why even going to the gym and banging on your body a lot probably does produce a novelty signal to the brain. Mm. Um, So anything that affects depression is a BDNF uh, final common pathway for relief, including SSRIs. SSRIs actually don't raise serotonin in spite of what the marketing literature says. They actually suppress serotonin long term, believe it or not. But something about monkeying with serotonin in the synapse and causing a cascade of suppression through the autoreceptor on the sending neuron, which notices a, a rise in levels of, of uh, serotonin that backs off, um, that ends up being uh, a lower level of serotonin long term. But SSRIs, over time, spike BBNF in the hippocampus. So it's this very indirect, low-key, sort of you know, downstream effect of BDNF, but that appears to be how all of these things work. Wow. What do you think about uh, right now? What seems to be big is the effect uh, of the microbiome uh, on the brain. Now they're, they're showing all these connections between, you know, things like gut flora and uh, behavior, depression, um, mm-hmm. you know, anxiety, um, and more recently they've kind of found a direct connection between the gut and the and the brain uh, through the mm-hmm. lymphatic system. 
Um, yep. Yeah. What do, you, what do you think about that? And you know, that sounds pretty. It sounds like that's a new, uh, exciting. Uh, it's new. It's research. exciting, and it's more complicated than anything we've come across before, or start to explore. There are more mm. genes in your gut than there are in the rest of your body combined. You know, you have more genes from other organisms inside your body by a large number than you than you have as human genes. Let's say, so billions of little creatures in your body. Um, whose microbiome, whose genetic expression affects everything around you, including what you crave for food, including what kind of mood you're in, including who you're attracted to, and changes in the environment change the microbiome, and that changes the mind. So if you are somebody who eats lots of carbohydrates and sugar, your microbiome adjusts to handle the carbohydrate load and then craves it and then makes you seek carbohydrates, for instance. Um, so we are still just barely scratching the surface on the human genome. The microbiome is like 30,000 times more complex. And so, yeah, exciting, (laughs) but way less. Almost daunting. It's a lot. (laughs) Yeah. It's, you know, it's, we're, we're not even close to it. Uh, I always, I always like when we get a mind like yours on the show, I always like to, to ask where are you, um, most excited right now as far as all the research that's out there or what are you currently researching what excites you the most right now uh, mm-hmm. that's happening and what we're learning about what are you into right now well i mean i'm, I'm very I'm, I'm a gerontologist as well as a general brain you know hacker i, I teach a lot of courses in gerontology at uh, ucla and um one of the very exciting things is we're getting much, much closer to understanding Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and all the diseases and aging, the other two big ones, of course, are cancer and uh, diabetes. All of these things seem to have sugar as their major sort of mechanism, including Alzheimer's, including uh, Parkinson's. Uh, Alzheimer's is now being considered a type 3 diabetes. Mm-hmm. Uh, neurons in the brain become insulin resistant with high levels of uh, glucose and insulin over time, which produces the same failure of insulinogenic systems that happen in diabetes in the body. Um, that is exciting because it suggests mechanisms we can intervene around. Uh, recently, there was a study out of UCLA. Um, let me back up a little bit. Uh, most Alzheimer's research for the past 20 or 30, 40 years has had the perspective where there's some specific mechanism or sp- some specific treatment that shows interest or promise, and then a scientist will do a very narrow study ex- examining one mechanism or one treatment, and that's been the, the bulk of the research. Somebody at UCLA earlier this year said, you know what, um, let me try something different. Instead of examining one little thing, maybe in an animal model or on cells, let me use behavioral interventions on humans who already have Alzheimer's. And I think he took 17 or 20 people um, took them off all their meds, and some of these people were fairly profoundly uh, severe in their symptoms, and then gave them an aggressive exercise, high-fat diet, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, kind of uh, intervention strategy, and many of them had symptoms reverse. Wow. Many, many of them. That's awesome. Uh, and, and now, you know, if you have somebody who has Alzheimer's symptoms, uh, one of the new things you can try is you can give your grandma or your mom, whoever it is, um, ketones, uh, either either, you know, coconut oil or actual prescribed ketones, supplemental ketones, and if the neurons in the brain are already insulin resistant, so you're having performance issues and cognitive issues, but they haven't fully died yet, then supplementing aggressively with ketones will actually bring those neurons back up in activity and reverse Mm. symptoms. There's some uh, evidence out there you can do this. And so things like that are showing us that, you know, one of the biggest killers, if you will, in terms of cognitive ability and aging 
um, is actually tractable and starting to become much more unraveled in all of its mechanisms. We're finding very similar things in all the other aging issues as well, atherosclerosis, cancer, diabetes, Parkinson's. There's a dramatic sugar uh, sort of pathway of these disorders and minimizing all sugar coming into your diet, it's definitely all free sugars, and minimizing all non-complex starch seems to be um, a really effective and powerful way to not only minimize risk, but potentially reverse symptoms, which is very exciting to me. Yeah, I, uh, I'm glad you said that because we, we tend to battle people in our industry uh, over, you know, uh, it's, whether it's just calories that matter or it's just proteins, fats, and carbohydrates mm-hmm. uh, because it seems like sugar is connected to so many mm-hmm. different things, everything from yeah. cancer to, you know, uh, brain, you know, brain degeneration mm-hmm. uh, disorders. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's very, very interesting to me how, um, how, why that is. Uh, do, do you have any clues as to why sugar tends to drive some yeah. of these things? Yeah. One word, glycation. That's, that, that's, that's the concept that is key to all of these issues. Now there's lots of things sugar does inflammation. It causes all kinds of weird insulin resistance, but the, but the damage the, the, the severe damage seems to be from glycation. Now glycation is something that in the body is incredibly bad. Basically, it's um, uh, lipids oxidizing, um, and they're oxidizing because of sh- because of sugars usually. Now, it's a horrible thing in the body. It's an amazing thing in the kitchen. If you <laughs> like bacon, <laughs> yeah. then glycation is your friend. You know, um, the, the in, in the kitchen we call this the Maillard reaction, where you heat carbohydrates and fat together, and you get this sort of caramel flavor. And Delicious. the Maillard reaction is in co- mm-hmm. that, that that flavor, that that sort of caramelly flavor is in bacon, coffee, organ meat, butterscotch, um, any of that smoky sort of caramel, that's the, that's the Maillard reaction. And so it tastes incredible, right? Um, but when it's in your body, it's fats and carbohydrates and things destroying cells. And in, um, in something like Parkinson's, for instance, we know that uh, Lewy bodies, which are little tiny aggregates of um, you know, junk, essentially, that are destroying brain tissue, Lewy bodies are glycated on the edges, and that's why they destroy brain tissue. In Alzheimer's, beta amyloid, which accumulates and causes some damage, is most damaging when it's glycated beta amyloid, not when it's regular. You know, we all have beta amyloid and tau. These are not problematic compounds in the body when they're, when they're uh, naturally, if you will, normally regulated. But once they're glycated, they accumulate faster, they destroy tissue faster, et cetera. So glycation, um, and this is the same process that leads to arterio and atherosclerosis over time as well, you know, hardening, hardening and um, uh, sort of oxidation of the arteries. Hmm. It's all the same damn process. Wow. And so you can really minimize all of these things, cancer, diabetes, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, atherosclerosis, arteriosclerosis by dropping sugar out of your diet. Wow, so th- this is fascinating because more, I mean, relatively recently, you know, mm. we were kind of led to believe that- It was all saturated <laughs> that fats. Well, besides, if, you know, fat intake, it was just your genetics. Your genetics right. were, mm-hmm. you know, you know, people with Alzheimer's, you have this gene for it. You know, diabetes, you have this gene for yeah. it. But it seems- Yeah, you, yeah you don't, actually. Wow. Um, in fact, the, 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 the genetics are deterministic, the Mendelian, if you will, Alzheimer's uh, risk, is a only very specific subtype of early Alzheimer's in your 40s and 50s. It's not the most common Alzheimer's at all. Um, the most common form is, seems to be more systemic and natural, if you will, no specific disease process. Uh, and uh, yeah, uh, we now know that in the absence of excess sugar, a, a diet high in saturated fats apparently is healthy. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, that's so crazy. I'm so glad you said that. Yeah. <laughs> We've been talking about that. That for, still shocks people yeah, to this day. Well, I mean, cholesterols and fats, I mean, they, they you know. They, they, cholesterol is an essential nutrient. If yeah. you don't have cholesterol, you, you, you don't produce hormones, you get depressed, you commit suicide. You know, uh, cholesterol is incredibly important. Low wow. cholesterol is one of the big risk factors. It's unusual, but if you have low cholesterol, it's a big risk factor for depression, for we've, suicidal depression. We've actually predicted that that will be a popular supplement in the future, is that people will start to supplement with cholesterol with the more and more research and science that comes out with that. Well, with exercise, yeah, we even find that high uh, high cholesterol intake uh, or dietary cholesterol intake uh, with people who exercise, it just it improves strength gains. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And there's no evidence that dietary cholesterol raises serum cholesterol in the absence of sugar. Zero evidence. In fact, you know, cholesterol is considered the one big, you know, stalking horse, uh, uh, you know, bad guy, but it's not. Cholesterol is at least three or four different molecules, and they have names like uh, high density, low density, and very low density lipoprotein. That tra- these are these are molecules that transport the individual cholesterol little molecules, and HDL is the good cholesterol, and LDL is the bad cholesterol. Except that it's not. It's not LDL that does the oxidation. It's VLDL, very low density, sometimes called VDL. And um, very low density lipoprotein is actually not produced from fat, from dietary fat. It's produced from dietary sugar. Mm. When you eat, when you eat sugar, your liver produces VLDL, and it produces these really easily oxidized, easily oxidized, big sort of goopy molecules that aren't very stable. And those molecules float around your bloodstream for a week after you eat sugar. In contrast, if you had a nice big plate of bacon. Yeah, sure. It causes an increase of LDL for one day, mm-hmm. and then it's wow. back to normal. Yeah. And LDL doesn't oxidize aggressively the same way that VLDL does. So it's really we're really um, have been giving cholesterol a bad rap. It's essential nutrient. If you don't have cholesterol coming in, you actually are not healthy. It's necessary for hormone production. It's used in every single cell in the body as a membrane protein or transporter. Um, heavily necessary cholesterol is not so bad the, for you. The, then what's your take then on a lot of these uh, prescription d- drugs to actually try and lower that uh, you think there's some adverse effects that people could be getting from taking not just some uh, only adverse effects wow. Um, wow you know there's a great article essentially statins are only for people that eat bread they're, they're not good for anyone else and they're only good for you if you eat bread because of how bad your inflammatory system is um, in fact, we, we know there are really dramatic downsides to statins. Uh, one example is um, statins disrupt the balance between the osteoblast and osteoclasts. Uh, those are, those are cells in our bone. Bone is dynamic tissue. We don't think of it as moving, but it actually does change all the time. Um, when you're stressed, your bone gets dense. If you're lying in bed all the time, bones get you know, less dense. There's, uh, these are regulatory cells that work in a balance, Osteo- osteoclasts. Um, consume old bone, they resorb it, and osteoblasts build, I think that's the right order, uh, build new bone tissue. And if you're somebody who takes statins, you've disrupted that balance, and suddenly you are eating your own bones dramatically, and bone density drops swiftly. Now, if you're already a middle-aged or older woman who's already got bone density issues because of you know, either genetic predisposition or lack of dairy or osteoporosis or something else coming in, and then you add statins into the mix – Forget it. Your bones are basically non-existent. So um, huge, huge issues we're discovering in statins. They are not good for anyone as far as I can tell. And there's no real evidence that dropping cholesterol improves cardiovascular risk. Yeah, and they show, um, you know, increasing, you know, saturated fat intake does increase LDL. However, it changes 
the type of LDL. You just talked about the low, yeah. the super low density versions, which are the bad ones. And it, so your LDL may rise, but you may you'll get kind of the fluffier versions of them, which are protective. Is that correct? Uh, other way around. The, oh, okay. the, the the more dense ones are are, are less easily broken down, Got oxidized. It. Um, so HDL is the most dense, the most small, if you will, version of this molecule. LDL is what we used to think was bad. It's sort of a big molecule. It's less densely packed cholesterol molecules within it. Mm-hmm. And VLDL is really huge and fluffy and has very, very low packing of cholesterol molecules and because of and, and, and more triglycerides. And because of that, it oxidizes much, much faster. So what can people do, uh, just everyday people do, to ensure that their brains stay healthy uh, long term that you know that they have you know their brain stay mm-hmm. fully functioning that they can can you know that they don't have these age degenerative type diseases yeah. in their brain what are some things that people can do well the, the the big three one is keeping your insulin sensitive which really means minimizing all heavy sugar hits and keeping your carbs low enough to keep insulin sensitive which my my rules of thumb are you know below 65 or 75 grams of carbs a day and below 20 grams at, at any one sitting t- to make sure insulin is always listening hard for that carbohydrate signal um, and, and not getting, you know, inured to it because it's so incredibly powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, so one is that. Two is uh, sleep. You got to sleep. Sleep is important for many, many things. Attention regulation, memory consolidation. We know that the brain sort of car washes itself with an agitated sort of cerebral spinal fluid bath when you're sleeping. <laughs> if that doesn't happen, toxins build up in the brain. We know that the synaptic density that's accumulating when you're awake gets reset when you're sleeping so your brain can actually learn again the next day. Um, and so uh, there's lots of and, – and, and then a chronically sleep-deprived brain, of which you know many of us are, looks very, very similar to a depressed brain. So sleep is key. It's not just a, a, a useful. It's necessary as a foundation. So let's see. Um, n- keeping sugar low, which I would say you know primal, paleo, keto, whatever you want to do. Keeping your sleep regulated, meaning getting about seven or eight hours a night, getting up at the same time every day in the morning so that your photo period, your brain's understanding of where the Earth's light-dark cycle is, is a consistent signal. So your brain's circadian rhythm gets lined up against the Earth's photo period. Uh, Tight entrainment to your light-dark cycle uh, against the planet's light-dark cycle is profoundly good for mental health. Hmm. And Getting out of whack and you know, free running where you're awake when the earth's asleep is really, really dangerous for mm. your brain. Um, so, uh, and exercise, sleep, I would assume exercise would be up there. And, exor- and exercise, and, but, but I would say that exercise, um, the, the first quote unquote exercise that's necessary for brain health is meditation or mindfulness. Interesting. You can, you can offset almost all psychiatric problems we know about and long term risks of aging in terms of brain you know, things by meditation. It can do a lot over time as much as drugs can do over time. Hmm. Um, so uh, those are the big three, meditation, um, diet hacking, and sleep hacking. And then once you have that foundation in, you can do the more aggressive and more dramatic things like neurofeedback, like nootropics, like um, you know, other sort of second level things. But I would put physical exercise in that first category as well. You know, hmm. Just like um, mindfulness is exercise for your brain tissue, I think exercise for your body will also encourage and improve all that stuff as well. And I think you need to be doing both. Hmm. You know, body exercise and brain exercise are both very necessary. And combining them seems to accelerate benefits in both. Excellent. So, so, off, of, so off of that theory, right, in talking like this, do you, do you find it almost um, silly when people are reaching for all the, the latest supplement or pill or things for them to take when – 
all these other things are kind of out of whack when they're not they sleeping. Do. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's the same, it's the same broken perspective. You know, why don't Americans, why don't we all have, um, you know, good musculature, low body fat and a six pack, you know, it's because we're a not in educated and it, it's more about the behaviors we're engaging in long term. We don't like things that have to be engaged in long term for benefits. We like quick fixes like pills. And so most of us would rather take a diet pill than go to the gym four days a week and work out. Um, and there's lots of reasons for that. I mean, maybe we're lazy, maybe we're busy, who knows? But we really do need to adopt more of a perspective on having control over our brains and bodies. We actually do. I mean, shift happens. It's going to happen. The body's going to change. The brain's going to change. How it changes to some extent is up to you. You know, what you practice is what it gets better at doing. And so uh, there's really no excuse (laughs) for not sleeping well, being anxious, being OCD, being PTSD, having migraines. There's, there's, There's no reason to tolerate that. Because there are incredibly uh, validated tools, including neurofeedback, meditation, et cetera, that can change your brain. So if you're not rested, if you're, you know, sort of in full-blown catastrophe mode, working 80 hours a week, always scrambling, you're not being very efficient. You know, you're not managing the sort of sweet spot of stress and keeping yourself with enough environmental press to stay engaged, but not so much that you're overwhelmed and performance degrades. And humans can't judge their own performance very efficiently anyway. So this has to be a habit, a lifestyle tweak versus a you know moment-to-moment pullback kind of thing on stress. That's funny because um, people tend to confuse being busy with being uh, productive. And you know, taking time yes. to be mindful will make you more productive. So it's that, it's that whole like, okay, I don't have time so I, because I got all these things to do. But it's like if you take the time, you'll be able to get those things done. Exactly. It's important to uh, – it's, it's necessary to focus on things that are – important versus urgent. Oh, very good. So so now that all being said now, let's talk about nootropics for a second. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us about what's exciting in the world of nootropics. Actually, before you even do that, how do you classify a nootropic? What does that mean? Because I know there's stimulants and then there's, you know, that people may confuse for being nootropics. Uh, Which are not. Yeah. Yeah. So what's the difference? What is it? What is it? Right. And then, there, then there's synthetic and then there's all natural versions of it. Kind of get in, dive into that. I'd like to hear sure. you talk about that. So the, the initial definition of nootropic had lots of features to it, including things like neuroprotective, Good for long-term health, improving cognition, meaning stress, memory, attention, sleep, something, um, and low or no side effects, meaning not habit-forming, no tolerance, effects don't wear off over time, and there's, and there's no real risk of taking them. Well, that eliminates, then, that eliminates caffeine. It absolutely does. Hmm. Caffeine has cardiovascular risk, suppresses appetite, it's habit-forming, it's very addictive over time. Not that that's an issue for most people, but it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so no, uh, caffeine's not a nootropic. Adderall is not a nootropic. Modafinil is as far away from nootropic as you can get. Wow. Uh, wow. There's th- These things are not nootropics. Nootropics are compounds that are gentle, subtle, over many, many days, weeks, and months. You're like, oh yeah, I'm just you know firing all cylinders. But anything that causes a dramatic change in your state, probably not a nootropic because those are usually dopamine issues and you can't sustain changes in dopamine. Nothing that you would j- develop tolerance to is a nootropic just that's, you know, or, or habit forming or any side effects. And so I'm really down on this whole wild west of marketing language <laughs> calling things nootropics that just are not. You know, maybe they're cognitive enhancers or smart drugs, but they are that category. And so my um, – classification is fairly narrow. There are some herbs out there that are called nootropic. There are some 
amino acids, there are natural compounds, synthetic compounds. But I think that's much less important if it's natural or synthetic than does it have side effects. You know, if you're trying to biohack, you're probably mostly healthy and performant, and you're trying to take it up a level. Mm-hmm. With that perspective, you should tolerate no side effects. Because if you're already point. fairly performant, any deficit is a, is a loss. If you're, you know, let's say you're profoundly ADHD, okay, then maybe you take a stimulant to help you get some benefit and you tolerate the side effects on your way to improvement. But if you're already great, then any side effect is a major no-no from my perspective. <laughs> and also great things like Adderall, not that encouraging of cognition. Things like modafinil, ridiculously ineffective for actually changing how your brain works. They make you feel really awake. But the side effects, this happened to me, the side effects from modafinil are life-threatening. Oh, wow. and if, in the hospital with head-to-toe hives for many days, having to be on courses of steroids to shut down an overactive histamine response provoked by low-dose, as-prescribed modafinil. Hmm. So um, dangerous stuff. If you don't need it, don't take it. Uh, if you're working with a drug, a cognitive enhancer, or a smart drug that has side effects, you should be only working in a perspective of fixing a problem with your psychiatrist not just biohacking with random drugs that have side effects. Very, very dangerous. So that all being said then, what would you consider to be uh, nootropics? Uh, yeah, um, things like, well, I mean, of course I helped uh, design True Brain, and all those ingredients are true nootropics from my perspective. Things like the racetam class, paracetam, oxyracetam, antiracetam, uh, phen- uh, 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 pramiracetam. Those are all so classic nootropics. Um, some herbs like... Um, uh, let's think. Right, well, uh, well, we'll go amino acids next. Um, L-tyrosine, L-theanine. L-tyrosine is a naturally occurring amino acid that is the precursor to dopamine. So by feeding your brain full of L-tyrosine, if you have dopamine issues, you might produce more stable levels of dopamine. Now, very different perspective on that compared to giving yourself a stimulant that causes massive releases of dopamine. In, in one case, you're feeding the raw material, feeding the system to act how it needs to, in the second case, you're altering the system dramatically, so it then has to adjust to what you've done and try to recover from it. Mm. So it's very important to only do things that are going to take the brain further in the direction it already wants to go in without monkeying with its core regulatory things, which means synaptic right, regulation. Um, other things, let's see, what else is in true brain? Magnesium. Uh, magnesium can both calm you down when you're overactivated as well as help nerves fire. So it's sort of both buffering low and overactivation. Um L-theanine is an amino acid I mentioned. L-theanine is found in tea leaves, and it's a GABAergic. It causes a nice, calm, smooth release of GABA, and this is why tea makes you feel calm and focused versus jittery and focused if you get that effect from coffee. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can combine those things. You know, take caffeine but add some L-theanine, and now it's a much more nootropic sort of optimized uh, cocktail, if you will. Yeah, that's actually my favorite combination uh, is mm-hmm. having theanine with coffee. Uh, and it just it, it totally uh, changes the side effects of caffeine for me. What about the choline? Uh, what about yeah. cholines? You know, like yeah. So there's a few cholinergics that are um, nootropic. Most are not. Most have side effects, but a couple don't. Um, alpha GPC and citicoline or CDP choline are both pretty uh, good forms of choline. You know, choline can be a little bit side effecty, if you will, if you go up and dose too much. You can get irritable. Um, there's a little risk of depression, I think, with alpha GPC especially if you go up and dose too much. Um, and then, uh, but the wonderful thing about especially CDP choline is citicoline affects the um, membrane transporters in the cellular membrane that turn choline into things like phosphatidylcholine. Mm. So it not only changes um, giving yourself CDP choline, 
not only gives the brain the raw materials to make better membranes and to use that choline to make acetylcholine, the neurotransmitter involved in memory and attention, but it also affects the type of choline in the cell membrane and the uptake of choline into the cell to produce phosphatidylcholine, which is used in heavily in cell membrane signaling. So some of these things not only are used sort of primary as a nutritive, you know, making more of the neurotransmitter, but actually affect long-term cell regulation. Um, this is probably how the racetams work, is by affecting the cell regulation. They don't really bind to a receptor of any sort, nor do the choline you know, drugs. They affect the cell's metabolism, not some receptor. So I think the, the receptor-targeting drugs are generally not nootropics. Because they aren't, you know, the receptors aren't meant to be monkeyed with. They have machinery in place to adjust. They're always responding to pressures and tuning themselves. They can listen to the range that they're being presented with. And if you totally monkey with the range, they you, you break some of the regulation sometimes, uh, or the ability of the brain to manage it is just lost, and then you have side effects. Mm. Um, so yeah, um, racetams, tyrosine, L-theanine, uh, omega three fatty acids are, are nootropics. I would say. Um, you know, but not a lot of things that are being called nootropics these days, unfortunately. What about ketones? Ketones are fuel, right? So they may have a nootropic effect, make you feel more clear, but if it's dramatic and you're having a a, a huge hit of clarity when you supplement with ketones, you might be somebody who's been a little bit, uh, um, stuck on carbohydrates and your brain is Mm. starved and your neurons are insulin resistant. It feels incredible to take some ketones you've got to drop sugar out of your diet completely and teach your body how to make ketones better. Wow, that's a great, yeah, that uh, that's very interesting. Very so, lightning right yeah, there. Yeah, so if somebody goes, hey, I just went on a ketogenic diet and my God, the difference in my mind, I'm so much clearer, mm-hmm. they might have an issue then <clears throat> with insulin sensitivity. Mm-hmm. And with inflammation. You dropped inflammation profoundly. You felt great after you went on a ketogenic diet for a couple of weeks. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So let, uh, I want to talk about the Racetem class of, uh, uh, of nootropics for a second because there's, you know, those, they're popular, they're synthetic, uh, they're mm-hmm. classic. Well, there's, I mean, they're synthetic, but what isn't these days? If you get some, you know, vitamin C, it's synthetic. <laughs> oh, not that there's a problem with that, just that they, I know in some countries are classified as drugs, and here you can right, purchase them, right. you know, over yeah, the counter. South, South America, sorry, South Africa and the UK, you can't get paracetam into those countries, for instance, um, without, without a prescription. Uh, Are there any dangers yeah, with using yeah. uh, the Racetem supplements? Or, or Almost none. Okay. Almost none. They're incredibly well understood in terms of how, how little side effects they cause because of just decades of use. We still don't quite know what they're doing, but we know they're fairly innocuous. There are a couple of contraindications uh, with Racetems. Um, one is especially Paracetam, maybe Oxyracetam. These things work by making cell membranes more flexible. It's probably one of the really co- uh, uh, serious sort of main ways that they actually exert their action. Mm-hmm. Because of that, if you have issues with your cells already being a little too slippery, meaning hemophilia, then you can cause bleeding. If oh, you, very interesting. If you're, if you're a hemophiliac, you should not be taking racetams. Mm-hmm. You might actually increase bleeding. If you're on large amounts of blood thinners, coumadin, warfarin, warfarin, same thing. You probably shouldn't be megadosing paracetam if you've got warfarin or coumadin in your system. Um, because you might cause bleeding. Now, that's one contraindication that's somewhat understood. The other one is paracetam is eliminated by your kidneys. It's renal elimination. So if you have kidney failure already, then the racetams would not be an ideal uh, compound to start with. Very interesting. I know that... It's not a risk factor for kidneys. It's just if you have compromised kidneys, you wouldn't want to start there. Sure, and that's for that's for lots of substances that are normally right. safe. So it's not exactly. a big, 
Um, I've, I've seen, you know, conflicting information on doses for racetams. I've seen on, on message boards, people taking, you know, 10, 15 grams and other people yes. taking, you know, three grams. And then people saying you need to take an attack dose when you first start taking them to build yep. up in your brain. Is there any validity to this or is it just an individual thing? Um, people are foolish is the short answer. And, um, people get stuck on one detail and, and somebody repeats it enough and loud enough and everyone else believes them. Um, what, what you're, what you're referring to is the fact that some people take, there's, there's some numbers out there, uh, four point, uh, is it 4.5 grams per dose or 9.6 grams per dose? Those numbers came out of a study by, um, Christophe Michel in like the late 60s, early 70s, who looked at single dose effects in the brain, human brains, and showed microstate complexity. Basically, entropy in the brain or complexity is a sign of intelligence. It means more connectivity, more microstates, uh, faster ability to switch gears internally, essentially. Um, and and, and uh, Christophe Michel found that there was a sweet spot with single dose where 2.4 milligrams wasn't as good as 4.8 was. And 9.8 uh, six was worse than 4.8 in terms of complexity and microstates. And mm. so that's, everyone ran with that, but that was an acute dose, a single damn dose. That is not how it acts when you take it once or twice a day for many, many days. Mm. So people just, you know, repeat thing, repeat bits of information they think are valid without, without really thinking about why they might not be valid. God, I'm so glad, I'm so glad you cleared that up because I've had questions, you know, people have asked me, you know, how much they should take. And when you go online to research yeah. and read, you've got companies selling, uh, you know, Racetam supple uh, supplements or yeah. nootropics and uh, th their information is also extremely inconsistent. It Do is. You, what is yeah. a dose that you recommend then of uh, Racetam uh, on a regular yeah, basis? So, so you asked about an attack dose. And I do find for some people that Racetams do work better when you first take a little more. But it's not necessary. You know, an attack dose might shorten the days it takes to start feeling it. And, and, and paracetam and oxyracetam, most of the racetams do take a few days often to really kick in the first time you take them. It's almost like an education process. The brain needs to figure out how to use this stuff, maybe. Um, but, yeah, for instance, in True Brain, there is an attack dose. Um, True Brain has a daily dose of about three grams of paracetam. But in the first 10 days, it's a 4.8 gram or okay. 4.6 gram dose. And so we double the dose for the first two weeks and then back off a little bit. And racetams seem to have a reverse tolerance. The more you take racetams, the better they work. So it doesn't really matter, I don't think, if you take an attack dose or if you just give it another week to see if it kicks in. Hmm. They're pretty subtle. So people often expect major, major effects and when there's only subtle effects or they don't get an effect on the second day, they, they take think it's more. not working. Yeah. It reminds yeah. me of, uh, I, I don't know, sometimes I think it's marketing because it reminds me of creatine when mm -hmm. creatine first came out. The loading phase. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They said, you got to do the loading phase and, it's, and you know, then you kind of learn like it really doesn't matter. It's almost yeah. like they want you to get through the bottle faster, you know. Yeah, exactly. Take 20 grams a day for the first five days or whatever and then, you know, five grams a day afterwards. Uh, but paracetam has this really broad, you know, inverted U pyramid of, of effects. So you can take small doses and have an effect and large doses and have an effect and not have weird side effects. You know, other nootropics like uh, Nupept, for instance, is basically an inverted V. Unless you get your dose perfect, you cause side effects. You know, Nupept, <laughs> if you up and dose a little bit, impairs short-term memory pretty powerfully. And so, you know, the racetams at least have a pretty wide effective dose range and you can really monkey with, with different doses without dramatic side effects. And so they're fairly safe to try different things with. That is not true of many other compounds you might want to take.
I have I have a question, Doc. Why we got you on here? I'm I'm really interested in this because we, we've we've all been in the fitness industry uh, for well over 15 years, mm-hmm. and about 10 years ago, we we saw this shift into the market with uh, pre workout supplements, and I find them very fascinating that uh, it's it's exploded. And when we dive into like really what they all are, they're just like a caffeine, a, yeah, just a, a <laughs> overload of stimulants that they yeah. that, that people are putting in these things filled with artificial sweeteners and dyes and other bullshit. Yeah, How, what do you feel uh, about that? And what do you think that some of the things that could happen to people? Or uh, yeah. what's, what's your thought on that? I think the word bullshit's a great place to start with describing that that market segment. <laughs> um, uh, yes. You know, what, one of my big red flags for supplements in general is any compound that obscures the amount of ingredients you take. Oh yeah. Every you mean single- proprietary blends? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Because then they then they, they can put whatever they want in the label, put almost none none of the amount of the stuff you want in there, <laughs> load up with caffeine or sugar, and that's what you feel. Um, so I have a rule of thumb that anything that doesn't disclose exact amounts of ingredients is um, snake oil, is, is completely, utterly bogus and may actually cause problems. And people do drink too many two workouts, go to the gym and have heart attacks because of the high caffeines and thing, high caffeine level. Mm. Um, let me give you my little secret about a pre-workout. There is a, a compound called sulbutyamine, which is a nootropic. And sulbutyamine is a thiamine, B1, bound to B1. It's a dimer. And because it's dimer, uh, thiamine in supplement form does not get through the blood-brain barrier, but salbutiamine does. So if you take salbutiamine, you get a really strong thiamine hit to the brain. And one of the things thiamine is used for is basically just metabolism, oxygenation, if you will. And so salbutiamine can be a nice, pretty subtle nootropic. It's used for many things, um, not dramatic, but salbutiamine before a workout, oh my God. Wow. It's like you can just, it's like a fire hose of oxygen was put into your body. You just don't get tired. You feel like you're burning fuel really efficiently. Um, and so I don't think you should be going after prepackaged uh, pre-workouts because I don't think any of them are good. I've, and I've not seen one I would trust. I mean, there may be some, but I haven't seen any. And as a space, I'm very suspicious now. Um, but a simple salbutamine and a cup of coffee would be my, if I, if I needed a caffeine boost, that would be my pre-workout. Now, I don't, I don't have anything before I work out. I don't, I don't eat. Actually, I, I do Ashtanga yoga, which is fairly rigorous. Um, and I do it from about 6.30 to 8 a.m. And so for me, the first thing I do is work out. I don't eat anything. Um, and I think that's good for improving insulin sensitivity, working out in a fasted state. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think it's better than eating on it in a, in a, than the workout in, in a fed state. Um, and if you're eating sugar and caffeine, you're, you've already sort of minimized some potential benefits of – uh, hammering on a, a slightly sleepy insulin system first thing in the morning to make it more sensitive. Mm. So I, I think that there's no benefit for pre-workouts um, and there's no real real use for them. Uh, I'd be more interested in, in feeding the body with things that would let it continue to work out for longer. And of course, those do that. But you could do the same thing with hydration, some caffeine, and a little bit of salbutamine. So I'm not sure that there's any real benefit there. There's definitely some real risk. Crazy, crazy how a a bullshit market like that can explode and become one of the most dominant. Well, let's be honest. It feels good uh, to be high on stimulants. I mean, that's just the bottom line, you know? 
Yeah. That's why they sell so many bottles of that stuff. Uh, you know, if you you could load it with uh, you know any stimulant, you know, people of course are going to love it because they feel great until they're. That's why do they throw niacin yeah, the in crash. there? So you get all hot and sweaty. I, mean, yeah, I just yeah, find it so, so fast. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, it's like, yeah, and then your dopamine yeah. starts to downregulate, and you you start to get you know you need it just to stay feel like you're alive. Otherwise, uh, mm-hmm. you feel horrible. I personally, I've had a lot of success uh, with. Uh, nootropics pre-workout. I notice if I just get my mind right, I have the best workouts yeah. ever where I'm up, but I'm not overstimulated and I'm focused and then I don't crash afterwards, which exactly. that seems to be the hallmark of these stimulant-heavy uh, pre-workouts is that you go home and then you crash like you just died. Um, and that, that doesn't, right. doesn't sound like a good idea. So Yeah, I don't want to bonk during my workout or after. Thank you. Right. You exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Uh, this has been Yeah, this has thanks been, for having me. Yeah, no, awesome, yeah, awesome, awesome. Thank you for listening to Mind Pump. If your goal is to build and shape your body, dramatically improve your health and energy, and maximize your overall performance, check out our discounted RGB Super Bundle at mindpumpmedia.com. The RGB Super Bundle includes MAPS Anabolic, MAPS Performance, and MAPS Aesthetic. Nine months of phased expert exercise programming designed by Sal, Adam, and Justin to systematically transform the way your body looks, feels, and performs. With detailed workout blueprints and over 200 videos, the RGB Super Bundle is like having Sal, Adam, and Justin as your own personal trainers, but at a fraction of the price. The RGB Super Bundle has a full 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can get it now plus other valuable free resources at mindpumpmedia.com. If you enjoy this show, please share the love by leaving us a five-star rating and review on iTunes and by introducing Mind Pump to your friends and family. We thank you for your support, and until next time, this is Mind Pump.